0: Well, the last time um, I discussed conscience with you, I think a couple of week, weeks ago, um, I told you at the end that the Greek word for conscience, sunnidesis, appears 30 times in the New Testament, and I gave you a list so we could check those out um, for us to to use that sort of as a guide as we think about conscience. If you have that list, you might want to take it out. If you don't, I have a few. Anybody need a list? I have a few extra. Let's look at those verses, and I wanted to do this. It's not, uh, well, it's an exhaustive list <laughs> from the New Testament and see if there's anything that these verses can teach us about conscience. So, I've spoken to you about it a couple of times, and now we're going to specifically look at these verses in the New Covenant Scriptures. Um, I'm going to read the verses with a little commentary, but do you know the difference between a monologue and a dialogue? Chip, what's the difference? Dialogue is between two persons. Monologue is a speech by one person. That's right. I would much rather for this to be a dialogue than a monologue. I've I've learned over the years to keep things moving whenever they, when you, Eric, and Bill, you know, when you attempt to dialogue and people don't want a dialogue, then it ends up being a monologue anyway. <laughs> you have to, but. I don't have this all figured out. So, uh, raise your hand or get my attention, and let's 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 speak. Um, the first one. So look at, the, at, at your list. The first one is Acts twenty three one. And Paul earnestly beholding the council said, "Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day." Now. The context here is that Paul is before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership council, after having been beaten in violation of Roman law. And here the great apostle can honestly say that he has matched his life to the best of his understanding with God's standards. So he, he's speaking to this Jewish leadership council and saying, I, I've I have matched my living to God's standards up until this day to the best of my ability. What can we learn about conscience? Look at the next one, Acts 24, 16. Herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and men. Well, what's he teaching? He's teaching that he he tries, he expends effort, he works to ensure that his living is in accordance with God's standards. With so, to the best of my conscience, I'm working to keep it clean. Romans 2.15, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Well, so here the great apostles speaking of Gentiles. They didn't sign up at Sinai. The Gentiles didn't. They never had the Ten Commandments. And speaking of them, Gentiles, not schooled in the law, Paul says that when they obey many of God's commands, even when they aren't in formal possession of those commands, they show that even without the law, they have a consciousness of moral standards. Even apart from the law. A consciousness that's clear enough that their minds use that consciousness of right and wrong to either accuse them or to say, you're fine, to excuse them. And it's a consciousness of right and wrong that is strong enough that God himself will use it as evidence in that great trial on the Day of Judgment. And I didn't print this verse, but that's what Paul teaches in the very next verse in Romans two sixteen that God's going to use that if you're guilty, you knew. So what do we learn about conscience? Thanks. Romans chapter nine, verse one. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not my conscience also Bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Seems to me to teach that somehow Paul's conscience interacts with the Holy Spirit. And an act here of confirmation confirms his honesty. So Paul's conscience is somehow He doesn't explain exactly how, but there's some sort of mysterious interaction between the conscience, which as we talked about before, is a human faculty. Somehow that interacts with God, the Holy Spirit. Not sure exactly how. Mysterious. Romans 13, 5. Wherefore, you must need to be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Well, what's he, what's he talking about? The context here is human government, human governmental authority. And Paul teaches these Romans that you Roman Christians, you should be submissive to the Roman authorities. Because there's going to be a lot of trouble if you don't. Wrath. Punishment. But not just that. You should also be submissive to this Roman government so that your conscience won't condemn you. In other words, don't just do it to stay out of the pokey. Do it to have a clean conscience. Um, anybody? Anybody? There's like a third thing there. When it comes to parents and conscience, you don't want spankings and you don't have a your conscience, but you know you also love them. Another reason why you do something that may overlap with conscience, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. maybe it's a third component, but motivations for what you do. Right. Could you all hear that in the back? Grady probably said it better than I did, but I think it's part of a a motivation. If you think about the, the discipline of our children, you spank them, you want their conscience to be right, but the motivation is love. So there's an interaction, a blessed interaction. Well, Paul... It seems mentions this idea of conscience more than anyone in the New Testament. And many of the Pauline mentions of conscience occur within the context of a pressing issue <laughs> that he had to deal with at Corinth. And, in, and the issue was the ready availability of good and economical cuts of meat in the market. Meat that was available because it was leftovers... From the sacrificial rites to false gods, to idols. So here, here's the scenario. I can buy some select chuck steak. Never heard of that until a couple of years ago. I can buy some select chuck steak for $9.99 a pound. But... A couple of stalls down here in the same market, I can get prime ribeye for 5.99. Does this relate anybody can relate to this? But if if you investigate, you'll find that the ribeyes are leftovers from the morning sacrifices to Diana. And It needs to be cooked today, or it'll spoil. But man, what a bargain! <laughs> ribeye, baby. <clears throat> so, prime ribeye for five ninety nine, or select chuck steak for ten bucks. First Corinthians eight seven. Howbeit, there is not in every man that knowledge. Some, with conscience of the idol, unto this hour eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Well, think about that in the context of Paul's discussion of food offered to idols. And he teaches, what he teaches is that when one goes against conscience, it defiles them. If you go against conscience, it defiles you. It makes them feel dirty. Does anybody know about this? Have you ever said something that you shouldn't have? And then you felt dirty? Or looked at something that you shouldn't have looked at? And then you felt dirty? Well, it means your conscience is working. In the context of these folks, their consciences are oversensitive. They're oversensitive because they're misinformed. And so they're feeling dirty about something that shouldn't make them feel dirty. But it does. Well, why why shouldn't it? Well, because Paul says an idol is no thing. Nothing. An idol is nothing. Their consciences are weak. Their consciences need to be strengthened, instructed, built up, which is something we'll talk more about later. we look at the next one, 1 Corinthians 8.10. And several of these verses are close in succession. If any man see thee which has knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? This is not a good thing. See, the idea here is that when someone sees an informed Christian, remember he says who has knowledge, someone sees an informed Christian with a rightly instructed conscience eating the meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, because that Christian knows there's really only one true God. Then that person with the misinformed Moral conscience will be emboldened and he'll eat too. He'll eat too. And without that re education of his conscience that's needed, that will be disastrous. He will defile his conscience. And remember, Bill, what was the quote from Martin Luther? to go against conscience is neither wise nor safe. Nor, safe. nor safe it's not holy scripture but that is a great reformer and whatsoever is not of faith is sin and that is holy scripture that's james i'm sorry that's paul romans 14:23 christians should not be involved with people violating their conscience. 1 Corinthians 8.12 two verses down when you sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience ye sin against Christ. So more about this meat sacrifice to idols issue we should never encourage anyone to violate their conscience. A Christian, you can mark that down. Christians should not be involved in encouraging anyone to violate their conscience. We may be involved in helping re-educate their misinformed consciences, but to encourage a weak brother or a weak sister, go ahead. Go ahead. Violate your conscience. That's a sin. Paul says it's a sin against Jesus. Don't do it. Don't do it. So Paul is so practical. First Corinthians ten twenty five. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. The shambles is the market, the marketplace. Whatever's sold there in the market So listen, that's that's wisdom. That is high apostolic wisdom. For Christians, for you who know there's only one true God, you don't even have to ask. What does it matter? There's only one God. He owns it all. You see? You don't have to ask because it doesn't matter. It's a theologically unnecessary question. And you're informed Conscience is already fine with it, so don't pursue it. There is a time for everything. I read that scripture to you a couple of Sundays ago. And there's a time to stop with the questions. 10, 27, 1 Corinthians 10.27 If any of them that believe not invite you to a feast and you are disposed to go, whatever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. One more the same. Where'd you buy this meat? <laughs> Bill I I grew up in Louisiana, and so I have eaten a lot of things that some people might have been. But I was a little bit apprehensive whenever I came to visit you in Cambodia. I, I was probably the least apprehensive of some of my traveling companions. But I had made up my mind before I left that whatever they set before me I was going to thank God for it and I was going to eat it. Part of that was just my raisin. But I think it's scriptural. But but Paul says 1 Corinthians 10 28 but If a man say to you, this is offered in sacrifice to idols, (gasps) don't eat it (laughs) for the sake of him that showed it to you. For conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So the point is, if someone informs you, indicating that his conscience, her conscience is troubled, we'll just eat something else. Don't make a big deal out of it. I think it's very practical. But listen, the preference here is deference. Deference, and, and it, this is disturbing. The preference is deference to the weak. That's a little bit disturbing. If somebody's weak, you know what? You need Do some push-ups. <laughs> Build it up, man. Come on. That—that's not. That's not the apostolic. The, the apostolic wisdom is: we who are strong ought to bear with the weak. You know who did that? Our Lord. It goes in line with the teaching about the parts of the body. Also, that passage. You know, so, some parts are. More presentable and seemingly more important, and other parts are less presumable, But we treat those with special modesty. We're still part of the body. It's also a good reason to come to church, and a good reason to study your Bible, because you need to educate your conscience. And let me tell you this. Do you know how the devil wants you? He wants you guilty, guilty, guilty all the time. Oh. When you're like that, you don't share the gospel and you don't do anybody any good. You understand? And you don't see any you don't you don't see outwardly when someone needs a word of encouragement where God might use you to be that word of encouragement because you're just focused on me. Oh, and if if you need to be guilty i want you to be guilty i want you to have a good conscience but don't let other people's conscience dictate yours educate yours according to the moral precepts of the almighty that's enough you don't listen friend you don't need you don't need somebody making up sins for you there are plenty of sins That you need to avoid. And you don't need uh, anybody else making them up for you. Deference, though. Deference to the weaker brother. Sure. And, and and i think i think that probably because of the history of the christian church that a bunch of even our unchristian neighbors would would agree with that and they would agree with it because of the blessing of christianity in western culture a lot because they would have just seen that's that's wise right why would you want to make somebody stumble? Even, even the lost can see that. And so, just like using the reason of reasoning of Jesus, how much more should we, who are believers, not be the one who puts a stumbling block before a brother or a non-brother? Yeah, be wise. And be kind, be gentle. 10.29. Conscience, the same discussion here. Conscience, Paul says, I say, not your conscience, not thine own, but the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? So the idea here is that you're not doing this for yourself, friend. That's the whole deference. You're not doing it for you. You're doing it for... Him. You're doing it for her. So that's the end of the section about meat offered to idols. But other thoughts? Eric? Well, Melvin, it's you know, part of the education thing. Paul does in that same context say there are things you can't do. Like in the paragraph before, it's like if you participate in the cup of blessing, the Lord's Supper, then you're participating in the blood of the Lord. But if you participate... In the sacrifices to idols, you're participating in the worship of demons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the meat is not the thing. Right. Right. It's the what? What are the what is the activity that you're doing? Right. Right. And so that doesn't mean okay, you can re, you can meet, eat the meat sacrificed to idols. That doesn't mean you can go into the temple and participate in what they're doing. Exactly. Off, off limits. But once it comes out of there, what do you do? Well, just give thanks for it, and to meat is the Lord's. Well, he's Paul the apostle, the genius of the New Testament, right? He requires some nuance in your thinking. Mm-hmm. And you, you can't read this quickly. You have to read it slowly and understand the arguments. And that's exactly right. You can't take of the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Okay. But... Because that ribeye was offered to a no-thing, still, still prime. <laughs> <laughs> the bill? It, it is, um, it takes maturity because, like, okay, well, we go against our own conscience, that's not good. So the weaker brother's conscience says, well, this is the action we have to take. Your conscience says, "What? Why would I do that? That's not against my conscience." Like we said, it's, it's indifference to them. Mm-hmm. But Paul even recognizes it there. Why should my liberty be determined by them? Right. That doesn't seem right either. I, th- I think he's rec- I think he's recognizing where I'm saying. Like your natural thing is, well, if you know you're weak, and you say you're weak, mm-hmm. do something about it. Do you remember uh, Brother Don Epler? I remember him being in really good shape and somebody asking him about working out. and Did he have weights and this and that? And he goes, what, what? He he couldn't quite hear. He's like, what do you have? And he said, I just have the ground. He just did (laughs) push-ups. Like don't need all that stuff, man. Well, 2 Corinthians, verse, or chap, yeah, chapter 1, verse 12. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have our living, our conversation in the world, and more abundantly towards you. Our rejoicing is this, what you're rejoicing The testimony of our conscience. Paul's teaching the Corinthians, you can rejoice because your conscience is not condemning you. It's a cause of joy. Their consciences were testifying of the graciousness in their living. Listen, listen. We, we talked about this before. It is a blessing to have a clean and a clear conscience. It's a blessing. If you've ever had one that's not clean and not clear that's bothered you, then you know it's a blessing to have a clean one, a clear one. I took the, my burdens to the cross and laid them down there. I think there's a song about that. Second Corinthians 4.2 We've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the Word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. When folks are instructed in truth, listen, when folks are instructed into the truth, there's an appeal to their conscience. Bill, don't you do that? I try to do it. I try to speak to you, and I try—I I want to make something resonate with you. I'll say, "You don't you know this?" And you'll say, "Yeah, yeah, I know that." How do you know? I just know. I'm trying to appeal to your conscience. It's something that we all have. Preachers do this all the time. A preacher shouldn't preach for money, and he shouldn't preach to try to gain power over people. But. If he's a true minister of the gospel, he should preach truth and appeal to his hearer's conscience, knowing that God sees it all. And truth is proclaimed because truth is the word of God. Right? Amen. Have you heard that little phrase, all truth is God's truth? It's true truth. <laughs> Five eleven. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Paul says, God knows me, and God approves of what I'm doing, but I wish you would approve too. That's what he's telling the Corinthians. I wish you would approve too. He's challenging them. You make a moral judgment. Judge me. You judge me. And he's confident that their consciences will judge rightly. In essence, he's saying, you test me by your conscience. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth for God's sake. Test me. That's what he's, that's what he's asking them. We'll look at the next one. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Now the end of the commandment is charity or love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. So the context here is Paul giving a warning about troublemakers who just want to argue about fables and genealogies and endless questions. And he's telling Timothy, look, Timothy, the goal here is Love. The goal is love. The goal is purity of heart. The goal is clean, clear consciences. The goal is faith in Jesus. Notice a clear conscience is one of the goals. Verse 19, same chapter. Holding the faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Now, he's talked about Hymenaeus and Alexander. And I think he's once again emphasizing that to go against conscience is critically risky. It's like a car crash. Risky, risky. It's like a shipwreck. That's the the word (coughs) he shipwreck. When a person decides to go against conscience, they are setting themselves up for a crash. It's therefore a reason. And to go against it is setting yourself up for a potential disaster. 3 9. 1 Timothy 3 9. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Now, this is in a list of requirements for the diaconate. And Paul's teaching young Timothy deacons must be righteous. They must live well. And they must affor- affirm Orthodox theology with a good conscience. They have to really mean it. 4 2. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, this. This verse from Paul is in the context of a warning about false teachers. And the false teachers in this context have suppressed their moral conscience and conscience consciousness repeatedly, thereby desensitizing their consciences. So you you see the image. The image is of a burn, a burn that causes scar tissue scar tissue having lost its sensitivity, the nerves having been damaged by the burning. And these false teachers have burned, not their flesh, but their consciousnesses, their consciences. So that now they teach falsehood. They teach lies without any guilt because their consciences are deadened. And he warns, about that I mean how could you go lie to a bunch of people how could you say take this drug it's going to hmm. it's going to help you I'm going to get really rich but you're going to die <laughs> how, how could you do that and live with yourself well you could deaden your conscience just go against it again and again and again and life doesn't matter I'm rich baby you think anything like that could actually happen? I mean, it does. Hmm. Second Timothy 1 3. I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers day and night. Hmm. Paul serves God in such a way that his own conscience bears witness. He, he feels God's approval. Well, then to Titus, chapter 1, verse 15. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. Sin dulls the mind. It defiles the conscience. It makes people dirty, Hebrews 9, nine. the apostolic writer says which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the sacrifice perfect as pertaining to the conscience. The idea is this, under the old covenant the sacrifices that were offered were according to the command of God. God told them to do it and so they did it. But they were weak. They were weak in the sense that they could not clear the guilty condemnation felt by that sinful sacrificer. Like, oh, I've sinned. My family's sinned. I need to go offer the sacrifice. But there's always this nagging guilt. And the apostolic writer of the Hebrews is saying, Those old covenant sacrifices couldn't take away that guilt. They couldn't clear the conscience. But then, verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? But, he says, but. The blood of the perfect sacrifice, the blood of Jesus, actually can cleanse, actually can purge the conscience. It can free us so that we can become servants to God rather than slaves to sin. Too good to be true, but it is true. It can actually cleanse your conscience. And Bill, we were talking about this earlier. I think that realizing what God has done for us in Christ and actually having clean consciences because of that is one of the most wonderful things psychologically that a Christian can experience. And it uber grieves me whenever I see someone who claims to be a Christian who can't seem to experience that. And I doubt their faith. Same argument, Hebrews chapter 10. Then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, once purged, should have no more conscience of sin. better translation would be probably consciousness of sins. This is one of the two times in the New Testament where the Greek term seems to mean consciousness rather than conscience. It's the same Greek term. The other place is 1 Peter 2.19, which we'll get to in just a moment. 10.22, let's draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the apostolic writer here teaches that Christians should have full assurance of Of heart and thus draw near to God because we have confidence that we're cleansed. We're cleansed by the sacrificial work of Jesus. And even our consciences are clean. Our guilt is gone because of what Jesus has done for us. Did he really do it? Did he succeed? Did he save us? Yes. Remember that. Bank on it. Have faith on it. Hope in it. Hebrews 13.8 Pray for us. For we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. Pray for us, he says. We are trying the best we can to live honestly and to live in accordance with God's moral standards. We're trying to Honor our consciences. Well, this is 1 Peter 2.19. This is the other place where I tell you it's probably better translated consciousness. This is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongly. That so could be translated consciousness. The idea is that it's a good thing when one who is aware or mindful of God's presence suffers wrongly. 1 Peter 3.16 Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation or good living in Christ. So Christians are to live in such a way that their consciences are clean, that their consciences approve them. They're to be more concerned about that than they are about the opinions of worldly men. 1 Peter 3.21 The like figure whereinto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God saved Noah through water. And that destructive water is a type. It's a picture. In baptism, the water doesn't wash away your sins like a shower washes the dirt off of you. He says that's not the case. It represents God's cleansing of your conscience, His removal of your guilt by all that Jesus has done, by the resurrection of Jesus, he says, by His death, resurrection, and and ascension. And the answer of a good conscience, Jonathan. Why do you want to get baptized? Well, Jesus said I should. Well, we'll stop now, but Lord willing, we'll continue on in the study and consider conscience and specifically Christian conscience (coughs) um, some more. Well, what else? Assessment of, of where, you know, of, of your state, and and even the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Right? It's all of that coming together in this quiet moment of truth. You know? We should all strive to listen to it. Amen. And, and I don't think that's pew jumper or charismatic at all, Mark. I think it's. I think it's. Orthodox. Brother I like Nick. that we take it before communion, and I, I take that as the time to really dig yeah. deep. And we had an extra quiet time this last time, I and mean, I was blessed by that. It's just... Amen. Hmm. Brother Mick, I, I was just on the last couple of verses that you mentioned there. It just the, uh, the change at the end of the Gospels when Peter denies Jesus three times when he had to live with in his consciousness or in his conscience and then when Christ has risen you know he's confronted three times and cleared his conscience and now he's, he's telling us about this he, don't worry about what the world thinks worry about what he thinks Short contrast there with Judas' conscience. Yeah. Horrific, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we talked when we started this about how serious conscience is. People kill themselves over issues of conscience. And Judas couldn't handle it, what he had done. Been better for that man. Well, this to clarify, maybe if you're wondering what uh, what I mentioned to Bill a little bit earlier was just about a person that we we both knew who visited for this church for quite a while, who never could get at peace that God could forgive his sins. And I honestly don't know how to help someone like that. I mean, the gospel, part of the good news is that Jesus forgives sins. The the scripture reading this morning was Jesus forgave sins. He said, your sins are forgiven you. And they said, he can't do that. That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And he said, watch this. Right? Right? Now, can I forgive sins? Basically, he proved that he was God. And he actually was forgiving sins. If you can't believe that, you can't be a Christian. Do you understand? Christianity is believing that. Jesus has forgiven my sins. And if you can't believe that, Jesus can forgive your sins. I don't see how you can be a Christian. And you can say I live in some country that's a Christian nation, but that's not sister I think what causes people like that trouble might be um, kind of an intellectual focus on the sovereignty of God and then acknowledging okay God is sovereign over my salvation and he can save me but does he want to has he will he kind of like you know prayer he could heal this person he could fix this situation but does he want to I I totally agree with you, Jennifer. And I've talked to... I know to Eric about this sometimes. And I think um, some of it's what I refer to as morbid introspection. And I'm a great admirer of Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine. However, if you read what's supposed to be the first novel, um, his Confessions, there was a lot of nasal gazing, navel gazing. And if you... If you introspect all the time, you'll go nuts because you are a sinner, and you have to fess up to that and forsake it. And if you're like most of us, you have to forsake it again and again and again. And and you have to believe in grace. And and, and if if. <laughs> I know there are a lot of good people. I'm a sinner, Mm -hmm. and obviously we're speaking of degree. But run to Jesus, run to Jesus, run to Jesus. I mean, Bill and I don't have a lot to preach about. The only all I can do is say this guy, this he can help you. He can help you. He can help you. Mm -hmm. Pretty much all we got to offer. Do your best to keep your conscience clean, Christians. Oh, Brother Reed, would you dismiss us, please?